help you find your way. Sorry we couldn't make it. Still, I miss you anyway. Thank you for tuning in to The Queer Truth, a podcast that takes on a variety of topics from pop culture to everyday life. I'm Chantel C. You can call me CC, and I'm joined by my partner in organizing, Denise. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm ready. Well, my voice is cracking, but we're going to make it happen today. So to begin, you know, this, I would, I would almost characterize this week's first segment around faux apologies, Mm. because let's start with Stormzy. We reported earlier this year that Stormzy came out to announce that he would be supporting two students from an Afro-Caribbean background who attend Cambridge University. Well, Stormzy had time this week and <laughs> in, at an audience at the University of Oxford. This is what I love about the story. He was at the mm. University of Oxford talking about his new book. And he put Oxford on blast and said he initially mm. reached out to Oxford, which is obviously the University of Cambridge's chief rival, to offer this scholarship. And Stormzy said they didn't want any part of it. So it didn't take long Mm. for things to circle back uh, to whoever at Oxford. Right. And they were like, wait, no, Mm -hmm. no, no, that story, that's, that's inaccurate. That's, that's not, that's not how that happened. A spokesperson for, from Oxford said that that's not what happened. They clarified by saying Stormzy reached out without saying why Mm. they didn't get back to it. I mean, why would you get back to Stormzy? The university Stormzy, actually... you can reach out to me at any time. I will get back to you promptly. <laughs> the university tweeted, quote, we have contacted Stormzy's representatives today to clarify. We would welcome the opportunity to work together on inspiring students from African-Caribbean heritage to study at Oxford, end quote. They said... They neither received or turned down a proposal for student support from Stormzy, but they couldn't really say what happened. They just were like, there was no developed proposal for us to accept or decline, but we take responsibility for missing the opportunity. I don't, I don't hear how you're taking responsibility because you're saying basically Stormzy reached out and who, who, who Stormzy? Why is he reaching out to Oxford? We ain't got nothing to say to him. It, it puts him in, a, in the hot seat. That's why they are kind of ambivalent about accepting this because um, in 2015, 10 out of... But Cambridge already accepted it, so... Okay, it's over now. But in (laughs) in 2015, 10 out of the 32 Oxford colleges did not admit one single Black British student. Mm -hmm. And the scholarship is specific, not only Black British, Black uh, British, Afro-Caribbean, right? Mm -hmm. Afro-Caribbean descent. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it could be that there are few to no students at Oxford that actually meet the criteria for this scholarship. And that puts them on blast in ways that I'm sure they're like, well, we don't even want to commit to accepting two Afro-Caribbean students, essentially. We don't ever want there to be a time where Stormzy is like, well, I have the scholarship set up, but they don't even have students that qualify for it because they don't accept Black students. Which could be the case some years. Imagine I, that. I think Oxford just saw Stormzy 
and we're like, there's nothing he could possibly offer us. Somebody looked at the email and was like, nah, we're good. Because it's Stormzy. Mm. Stormzy doesn't hold his tongue about mm-hmm. anything. Stormzy calls the Met police out when they're talking about, ooh, look at all these drugs we just confiscated before Carnival. And the drugs are like mm. two hours away from Carnival. You know, Stormzy is someone who is politically on the right side of things. And he has no problem with calling things out as they occur. I think Oxford just wasn't interested because it says Stormzy on it. That's what I think. And now they're looking that, crazy. That as well. And and now they're looking crazy because he felt the need to pour some piping hot tea on their campus while promoting his book. I mean, that's like perfect timing. <laughs> he couldn't have done it mm-hmm. any better in yeah. other Well, mm-hmm. they missed it. You just lost one Oxford. You just lost one. But I you know, they're not sweating it. That's not the kind of money they want anyway. It's, let's be real. Like you said, that's not who they want to associate with. And that's part of why their numbers are so low. They're I would, really clear I would about love for who they're more serving. Stormzy's to come around because you remember with the Roads Must Fall uh, movement, Roads fell in South Africa. Roads did not fall at Oxford because mm-hmm. a donor threatened to pull their money. And Oxford said, we're shutting this down. Roads isn't coming down. We're not about to lose that donation money. So we need new donors to come in so the roads can fall. Yeah, we need donors to stipulate you can have this money if it falls. Yeah, that's what we need. Because clearly it's just all about money. Of course. That's all they care about. That's all they see. I hope that Stormzy uses this opportunity to negotiate something more than just supporting two students because that would be dope. And not that that's not already a lot. But it would be dope to see that happen. Yeah. And there's something about there's something about that that just I don't know. As someone who went to HBCU, I feel like we need to focus on what worked for black students if we want to support black students. And sure, there are black students at the elite institutions, but they are a drop in the ocean compared to the the black students that HBCU and community colleges and and just, you know, your run-of-the-mill institutions crank out. Mm-hmm. Those are where the bulk of Black uh, students are getting their higher education. Mm-hmm. And so it would, maybe he made a decision economically based on, okay, this is how much I can afford. Um, so let me do it at the best institutions possible. That's fine too. But it would be great if there could be a fund, especially since, it really went down in the UK in the last, uh, when was that, eight years ago? The Cameron tripled the tuition fees, and so now they're unattainable for so many um, students that if there could be a generalized fund for Black students that want to achieve higher education and now it's unattainable for them, it would be great. And if they if, if they could go to the institutions that they would just normally go to, because well, the, the reality is, mm-hmm. the reality is, uh, Cambridge and Oxford aren't, you know, aren't cranking out tons of black students. They're, well, they're that, cranking them but, out. But that's his point. That was what his, mm. that's what he wrote in his Instagram post when he announced it, that we're heavily underrepresented at top universities. And he hopes that that scholarship can make it possible because there are people who get accepted and can't go still, right? It's more about the prestige of getting accepted, but knowing that they can't attend for whatever reasons, there's more than just financial reasons involved uh, beyond tuition. And so he says, this is just the tip of the iceberg. He has so much more planned, but he wants to see us better represented at these top universities. And I can appreciate Mm -hmm. that. I understand that. I'm glad he's doing something. I really appreciate that. 
And I'm interested in this book. What's this book about? You know? Why don't you read it? I'm going to do it. I read sometimes. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't know what his book is about because I haven't read it. He's just now doing the starting these tours. In other news of bad apologies this week, I have to give you the backstory. So last week, a person, I, you know, I don't even like her, but that's beyond the point. Rebel Wilson uh, was, you know, doing the rounds for her upcoming movie, Isn't It Romantic?, which is about a New Yorker who hits her head and wakes up stuck in a world full of romantic comedy tropes. She uh, is the star of a rom-com. She goes on the Ellen DeGeneres show to talk about the film. And she says, quote, I'm proud to be the first ever plus size girl to be the star of a romantic comedy, end quote. Now, obviously, in the day and age of social media and uh, live fact checking, the people of Twitter came promptly to remind her that she is surely not the first curvier lead because of films like Just Right, Last Holiday, Beauty Shop with Queen Latifah and Fat Girls with Monique. And there were a number of people who were like, no, 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 Rebel. You can't, you can't erase this. You can't erase that. She, unfortunately, instead of just owning her mistake, replied to one particular tweet, quote, hey, girl, yeah, I, of course, know of these movies, but it was questionable as to whether, one, technically those actresses were plus size when filming those movies, or two, technically those films are categorized, billed as a studio rom-com with a sole lead. So that's a slightly gray area, end quote. So let's be clear. There was never a time where Queen Latifah or Monique would not be classified as plus-sized, ever. Technically. Technically. <laughs> was they technically, <laughs> i.e. white plus-sized? There was never a time where that was a question. So obviously the responses continue to be swift to that nonsense, And people accused her of erasing the accomplishments of Black women. Even Monique jumped in, in that Monique way, and tweeted, Hey, my sweet sister, let's please not allow this business to erase our talent with giving gray areas and technicalities. Take a moment and know the history. Don't be a part of erasing it. I wish you the best. (laughs) Such a Monique tweet, I'd say. So she went full on auntie. She went full on auntie. That's what she loves to do. Mm. And, uh, and Wilson then replied to that. Hi, Monique. It was never my intention to erase anyone else's achievements. And I adore you and Queen Latifah so, so much. I support all plus size ladies and everything positive we are doing together. No, boo. No one believes you because you continued to block black women who were calling you out on the mistake. There were several people that I even follow who were on my timeline talking about Rebel Wilson has blocked them on Twitter because of them calling her out. So basically her PR people must have got control of the social media and they were like, this is what's about to happen. And they then went on to tweet in a couple of well-intentioned moments, hoping to lift my fellow plus-sized women up, I neglected to show the proper respect to those who climbed this mountain before me, like Monique, Queen Latifah, Melissa McCarthy, Ricky Lake, and likely many others. She also added this little jab, with the help of some very compassionate and well-thought-out responses from others on social media, 
I now realize what I said was not only wrong, but also incredibly hurtful. Now, the problem with that is there she's basically saying, I will listen to people who are nice to me and don't hurt my feelings. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people were just doing what you do on Twitter. They weren't being malicious. They were just like, nah, girl, you know, they put up a GIF, they put up the receipts and that was it. That is how you communicate on social media. They were not not only that, they were being nice. They were being nice. (laughs) That's the thing. They were being nice. And she did not have the same standards for white women that answered her as she did for black women that answered her. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's true. And to to be clear, this apology, this faux apology, everybody who listens to us knows that there are very few apologies that I actually accept from these people. This faux apology that she issued only came after Variety wrote an article about the whole situation. And Variety hopped in on it because there was a hashtag created, hashtag Rebel Wilson blocked me. So, you know, I don't... the. I don't know if these Australians are ready. Oh, like they, ooh. I don't know if the Australians are ready. Let's be real. You know, people come into uh, an American um, scene where their level of dismissal uh, may uh, kind of like go above, like below the radar, given the context they're coming from. And then they're coming into a scene in Hollywood that's very American Mm -hmm. and has a very uh, racialized history and try to do the same things they would do back home. And I don't think they're ready. I just don't think they're ready. On top of that, you know, it's, it's just classic white feminism 101. She, Mm -hmm. (laughs) she's out here essentially. um, She doesn't even see black women as women right? Essentially is what she's saying. And one of the things that really struck me is that I didn't see the trailer at first. I just saw the trailer and then tweeted about it because I was so astonished because movies that she was erasing or dissing, essentially, actually have a real world representation of plus size women, not Mm -hmm. this fantasy world representation of plus Mm -hmm. size women. Mm-hmm. So here you are talking about, ooh, rom-com plus size is going to be lit. And then she's essentially doing the same thing that um, Amy, the um, the comedian, did. Why am I so bad with names? Amy Fuller. <laughs> mm-hmm. she's, she's, she's basically doing this, I hit my head and now I'm beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. This isn't real. I can't just be um, living my life. So, so the whole size. premise of the film is around her size. The whole premise of the film is around her size. It's like she grew up as a little girl. She was always big. She's like, I'm never going to find love because I'm big. And then she grows up and then her coworkers are trying to convince her that romance is real. And she's like, no, not for me because I'm a big girl and things don't work this way for us. And the only way that shifts for her is when she hits her head and then she's in an alternate universe where she's like stuck in a rom-com. And it's not clear. Yes. And it's not clear from the trailer if it's actually a sci fi situation where she lives there now Mm. or if she's just unconscious in the hospital the whole time. I I have a feeling she's unconscious the whole time because nothing makes sense. And she really is living in a rom com. She's not like nothing's real anymore. Oh, my gosh. And that's what she's paving the way with. That's what she's paving the way with that essentially telling plus size women the only way you could be seen as attractive is if 
you wake up in an alternate universe. Like, get on the spaceship <laughs> and go. <laughs> no. Yes. And find you a Klingon. I don't know. Like, she's just essentially, and that's not it. Like, no. that's that's not helping anything. That's not empowerment. Oh it's gosh. so much of, you know, and then when you, are, she, she, she put it out there, like she was really doing something. So when I saw the trailer, I was aghast because I was like this, you unwrap it and it's the same old tropes. It's the same old stereotypes. And you're actually just reinforcing that in this real world that we live in, a technically plus size woman is nothing more than her size, mm-hmm. cannot be considered important, cannot be considered attractive and cannot be considered any kind of like romantic viable option. Right. The only way that can happen for her is if she wakes up one day and all of a sudden she's in an alternate universe. Mm -mm. That's horrible. Speaking of reiterating old tropes. Now, you know, I love me some Netflix and I love me some Netflix originals, but why did Netflix feel the need to create a new live action adaptation of the Jungle Book. Oh, man. We just had a renewal of the Jungle Book in 2016. I thought we were done with this racist story. But I'm thinking sometimes these stories come back because, like, the copyright is expired. And no, so they don't have to pay for the idea. we just had a new film in 2016. We just had it. It's even on Netflix. You can watch it on Netflix. There was no reason to touch this film again. There was no reason. It has been done enough times. Granted, the 2016 one was a little better on the racistness, uh-huh. but but the book is racist. It was written by racists. You can't change. That is racist. I don't know what Netflix was thinking. And then if you look at the cast, like, there's not even, like, the main voice and live action actors from what I could see. I don't see no South Asian people in that. I mean, this comes at a time when they also greenlit my favorite new Netflix uh, thing, which is the Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj. I love it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's only been, we're about three episodes in and he really brings it. I, at first I thought it was just not going to work at all. And it totally works for me. But yeah, I, it's, it's really interesting how, all of these new mediums have happened, and then all of these existing, um, existing uh, sort of Hollywood outside of Hollywood industry that were primarily people of color. So we're looking at Nollywood and Bollywood right. specifically, mm-hmm. got left out of that whole thing. Um, so you have Amazon, you have Netflix, you have Hulu, and I there's a handful of uh south asian movies there's a handful that's not true not on netflix i'm sorry not on netflix netflix is very big in the south asian era you just got to be in the right place it's probably not coming up because that's not matching with you but you have to remember there's a lot of stuff on netflix you never see because of their algorithms you have to know how to you have you have to know how to find it netflix is doing the south asian thing and that's why everyone is like what are y'all doing you didn't even need this why would you but it's not it's not for them. It's not made for them. It's made for their their viewers in the West. But I just don't understand why we had to remake something that was just remade and can be watched on Netflix. We're going to see a lot of that coming up. We're going to see a lot of good movies turn into Netflix series. 
just kind of like the dear white people of, you know, I, I think that that is like a, a, a core piece of their model. But this is like, let's... a series. This is just a live action version of the film. It's not a series. I read that wrong. Okay. It's just a live action adaptation of it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe they'll surprise us. Maybe they'll be like Mowgli up in there fighting colonialism. <laughs> Mowgli up in there sabotaging the missionaries. Girl, with Christian Bale, <laughs> Kate Blanchett, and Benedict Cumberbatch? I don't think so. Oh, not Benedict. Benedict. Oh, Mr. Colonialism him. himself. Oh, my God. Mr. I inherited all this slave money. Yes. Mm. So. I can't. Not Benedict. In our second segment. Now, there have been quite a few articles that have come out recently that have told us what we already knew. But just recently, like this week, what has come out? LeanIn.org, and everybody who has ever worked with me professionally knows how much I hate LeanIn as a book. LeanIn.org and McKinsey and Co. did um, a women in the workplace survey, and they surveyed 279 companies and had more than 64,000 employees, you know, fill in these questionnaires on all types of experiences in the workplace. And those people came from different races, ethnicities gender, professional backgrounds, and so forth. And surprise, surprise, what did they find? Black women have it harder than anybody else, like in real numbers. Not that we didn't already know that, but people never believe us on it, right? So just like to give you an example, for every 100 men that are promoted to uh, a managerial position, 79 women are promoted. But This survey, thankfully, dug in a little deeper and found for every 100 men promoted to managerial positions, 60 black women are. Wow. For um, the, there's like one in five senior leaders who are women. There are one in 25 who are women of color. When it comes to um, the major things that black women deal with in, in their professional workplaces, it's that beyond the, the myriad of microaggressions is that they are questioned in their judgment in their area of expertise. They get questioned mm-hmm. more than other people and they are people demand that they provide additional evidence for their competence. Is of there course. anything about that that surprises you as a woman in tech specifically? Oh, come on, come on. You know, nothing about that surprises me. I mean, there's nothing about that surprises me, but I think, that we also, when Lean In came out, a lot of people were like, oh, she just doesn't get it. She doesn't know this. I, I, I'm I, starting to feel a lot different about white women and what <laughs> they know or don't know. I am. I'm starting to feel a lot different. I don't believe that in 2018 they don't know this. I don't believe that they've been in organizations looking at these brilliant Black women not go anywhere in their organization or remain stagnant or remain... uh, I've seen this happen. Mm -hmm. White women are complicit and sometimes are the exact bad actors and could be worse actors than white men for Black women. There's something about that um, lateral violence that happens between women. They're like, well, we know one woman's going to get it and you know it's going to be me. Mm -hmm. That happens between women. 
um, especially in the workplace that's uh, extremely competitive. I don't think they don't know. They know that uh, the rules are different for us. They're just not interested in um, articulating what those rules are and even articulating that difference. I think part of part of the power of white supremacy is this kind of invisibility of it. And people that are complicit in that invisibility are supporting white supremacy. The, the, the biggest trick of a white supremacist um, uh, supporter is to say racism doesn't exist. I don't see color. What are you talking about? And basically to frustrate you and gaslight you into believing you need to convince them and show them evidence and statistics and, and you know all of this and all of that and research studies. They don't need to see that. They see it with their own two eyes. But that is how they support it because you know they don't want to put on a hood and support it like that. So that's how they're going to do their part to support white supremacy. So I have a question. Because, you know, they said um, in this study that they noticed black women in particular deal with a greater variety of microaggressions. Mm-hmm. So I can't get into it because these people could be important one day. But mm-hmm. let's l- suffice it to say I was at a big tech conference this this week and had the pleasure of going to dinner with some big folks. And there was a white man who touched my hair, like really touched <gasps> it. Like not oh just, God. not just like touched it, like petted my whole head mm. while telling me he thought my hair was beautiful. Mm. And, and this is, look, you know, we had a good conversation. We have been having a good time. When he did that, I didn't even do it in fury. I'm, I moved and I said, do not ever touch my hair. Mm-hmm. And he said, I can't touch your hair. I said, you can never touch a black woman's hair, period. He was mm-hmm. like, I can't touch a black woman's hair. I said, never touch my hair. Is it possible to be a white man in the U.S. and be like 45 years old and live and have lived in Atlanta and have lived in California and not know that you cannot touch a, a black woman's hair? Is that really possible? Yeah, because if all of no. your interactions, yeah, I think so. It, I think so. In here's, Atlanta, here's the reality. They live in Atlanta and not know Hey, that. white people don't have to know jack squat about us on an equal playing field. Let's be real. There are some white people who only interact with black people where there's a tremendous amount of power differential. And so for you, you're not afraid to tell him what it is. But what if the person telling him what it is is his cleaning lady? Is she going to feel as empowered to be like, yo, don't touch my hair? What if the person telling him what it is is his babysitter or his subordinate at work? Do you really think this is someone who's like my friend Janet, who has an equal position professionally as me, and I go out for lunch every other Tuesday? Like, this is not that dude. Look, I'm not, I'm certainly not his equal if you want to go like that. Uh Uh-uh. Like, if we talk about technicalities, like Rebel said, I am not his equal in any way. <laughs> You're not <or> technically. <laughs> yeah, so he's professionally on the technicality. Yeah, and it's a problem because most most white people um, in Europe and in America are not do not have the opportunity and do not seek out um, interactions with black people that are not somehow 
that do not somehow have an implicit power differential because you work for me, you're providing a service for me. You know, I could I could like essentially really shift your life with one word. If you don't get this recommendation, it's going to shift your life. Or if, you know, sometimes it's even just like a professional contact that's uh, very important. So what you're trying to tell me is basically I messed up that connection now because I told him not to touch my hair. I think that I don't think that it's necessary that you you messed up that connection. But I think that for some black people, they they go ahead and they do the math. Is it can I deal with this uh, subjugation, this humiliating experience for the next five seconds of someone stroking my hair in order for me not to cause any waves in this potentially very important contact for me? They do the math for you. You like, yeah, I could do that. I'm going to go ahead and blow this up. <laughs> but but there's, a, there's a lot of Black people that, that can't afford it. You know, they, they don't feel, you know, and, and there's the psychic violence that comes with that, you know, because you don't even know how that person is going to respond. Mm-hmm. And so now you have to be this person that is the origin of conflict. Yeah. You have to be the person that is setting a boundary and not being friendly and not being a team player. And, you know, all of the passive aggressive language that is used against black people, not being kind, not being compassionate, not being open to curiosity, not being yeah, all of this. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, that's who you are. You're a problem now. In our final segment, what are we excited about? What are we looking forward to? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> never so, prepared. I don't. I'm super prepared. <laughs> See, this is where I got you. Okay. Eat those words. I'm, I'm Eat those them. words because mm-hmm. uh, Vienna is coming with the queerness, and the queerness is lit. You've always so, said that. Uh huh. This has been your comment for a few weeks. Now. My comment. Okay. It's it's not <laughs> just my comment for a few weeks. It's the reality. All right. Um, a while back. We uh, established an organization for African LGBT people or people of, from African descent um, here in Vienna. And ever since then, I've just been absolutely astonished by how they've come together like a family, because a lot of these people are a lot of us are, are here just totally by ourselves, without any family, without any support. Many of us are asylum seekers. And so the way that I have seen that network blossom and grow is amazing. There's a kitchen called the Queer African Community Kitchen, and that happens at Planet 10 mm-hmm. um, in Pernestorfa Gasa 12. And that's amazing. That happens from six until every single Friday. Um, we got a Thanksgiving feast coming up here in um, in in uh, Vienna, which I'm going to check cooking? That's the thing is that nah, it's a don't kid- go. Don't do it. The, so, so you're gonna be disappointed. Make your own dinner at home first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that southerner coming out. <laughs> you. you like who baked this macaroni and cheese with marshmallows? Mm-mm. I refuse. So I'm thinking about it. It's about Democrats abroad. And I'm thinking about it, like, just to see what's up, what kind of community organization, Thanksgiving, there could be potlucky type situation. I know you, you this is sacrilegious. To you. Yeah, that's not. Um, <laughs> and uh, we have a, um, 
a queer uh, transition uh, film uh, series that happens here. And we're going to have a queer refugee short story film series on November the 15th um, as part of the Transition International Queer Minorities Film Festival. And that's going to be at Josef Platz 2 in the first district. So there's a lot of film and things going on. Mm-hmm. And I know that it seems very small because some of us are in big cities. Some of us got Michelle Chimanda. I don't know. You know what? We're not even going to talk about that. Because you know what? Let me tell you why we're not going to talk about that. Because I can't even bother to be looking forward to the fact that Michelle Obama is coming in conversation to talk about her book with Chimamanda. Why? Because it sold out before anyone actually had a chance to buy tickets. Yes, yes. They needed a bigger venue. I mean, I no, saw, no, South Bay Center is a huge venue already. That is not big, the big, issue. You, got, need, you not, need like five. five <laughs> you, you need like five of these. You needed to be mm. in an arena. They could have sold out Wembley with this. Are you kidding me? They need mm. to stop. South Bank Center. It's a great venue for this. This is, you know, this is the same venue where Angela Davis spoke, which I got tickets to. It's the same venue where and the tickets were free as well, right? The tickets were free. No, there was nothing free about these tickets. These okay. tickets were between thirty pounds and two hundred pounds. There was oh free. wow, wow. <laughs> there was nothing. Well, free they about they these did tickets. say that they were going to prosecute people trying to resell them. Yeah, they said if they're resold at a higher value, the ticket is null and void. The thing is, you can't <laughs> you can't make these tickets null and void. Mm. It has a barcode. They don't even scan barcodes. They just look seats. Okay, go on. There you go. Mm-hmm. So I felt I, I tweeted that somebody's gonna pull an inside man in South Bank. <laughs> like I, he's <laughs> like just just put yourself some drywall up in there and get yourself set up, and you be there when the actual event happens. You be I. Right. <laughs> there is nothing to be excited about, but uh, I am excited because sorry to bother you has finally got its release date. It's coming to London. I'm very excited. I will be there when it opens, but I'm not going to be, I'm probably not going to go to a cinema that's in my neighborhood because I want to actually hear everything that's happening on the screen. So I might have to visit. Okay. Okay. I got you. I might have to visit a different place to make sure I can actually watch the film, but I am thrilled that it's coming to London. Let me tell you, I, I think it would be fine for you to go and see it in your neighborhood because you're probably going to see it two or three times from what I've heard. Right. And this might warrant a trip from the one, the only me, because <laughs> there is, is, I, I don't know what is happening. Mr. Boots Riley, if you are listening, we need this from Vienna as well. It's not coming to Vienna. Shut well, up. That's all for this. <laughs> if you'd like to keep up with us, you can follow us on Twitter at The Queer Truth. We'd love to hear your thoughts on some of the things we've discussed today, so feel free to get at us. And if you have an extra dime or two, drop it to us on patreon.com slash The Queer Truth. Until next time, peace out. <laughs>